You have tuned in to the podcast portion of the Narrated Puritan, a sermon audio site for Puritan audiobooks. This morning I want to make a number of comments on an article by Tim Challies called Revival at Asbury, a Cold Take. Of course, I want to be charitable because Tim Challies is doing a lot of good work for the Lord. But I think that this is important because the history of revivals and the doctrine of revivals is something that we don't talk about a lot. In fact, it's been about 20, 25, 30 years that I've been studying this that I just wish that we could have this discussion. As I think over the history, at least, of the conferences within Reformed Baptist churches, the only time I can remember that this subject, the history of it, the teaching of it, has ever been brought up in one of our conferences is going all the way back to 1973. And the conference was in Harvey Cedars, New Jersey. I wasn't there. I came across the messages some time after. At the time, Ian Murray was invited to give a number of lectures on the history of revival, and it turned out to be five and all. Of course, those were then on cassette when I heard them, and I've listened to them over and over. Really, it was the beginning of Ian Murray's study on the subject of the history of revival, which in 1994 became his greatest work, in my opinion, on the subject, Revival and Revivalism. I've listened to Michael Haken's lectures on this as well, but what's interesting about Murray's teaching then was that the books that he quoted from to give us his history were not yet back in print. Those would be such things as the sermons of Edward Dor Griffin and uh, History of the Log College by Archibald Alexander, William Sprague's Lectures to My Students originally came out in 1832. It was republished by the Banner of Truth. Uh, History of Connecticut. Sketches of Virginia by William Henry Foote. Letters on Revivals by Ebenezer Porter, though I don't know if that one was named at that particular conference. I'm just thinking through the works that were not in print that got reprinted by the Banner of Truth publication. But interestingly, they went back out of print What it showed me was that there is not a real love of this history, though I am pretty sure the two volumes of the Hickman edition of Jonathan Edwards were in print at this time, and they have stayed in print, but the subject of the history of revivals is something that has not generated a large audience. But it's something that's always fascinated me. I have often marveled that this subject hasn't generated more interest, and as I have listened to a lot of the reviews and commentaries on the Asbury revival, I must say that the fact of the matter is that the people who are making these reviews and commentaries show that they themselves are not very familiar with the history of what goes on in a real revival of religion. For example, a deep understanding of the Great Awakening. They think the Second Great Awakening is entirely Charles Finney, which really the Second Great Awakening started in about the year 1792, and the purity of it continued about through 1820 and 1830. But I think that there has to be one more groundwork that needs to be laid at a foundation of the study of revivals, and that is there's been an awful lot of charity as I suppose there must be, in the reviews of the Asbury Revival. Notice that in the reviews of it, it is taken for granted that the students as a whole, most of them, are actually converted, and all they needed was spiritual renewal. 
As I listened to the testimony of one young man, he was concerned because the students were paying attention in their classes. Their eyes were fixed upon their cell phones. The world was the social network that surrounds them. And they suppose that the revival brought renewal. But isn't it possible, and from what I know of the history of revivals and what I know of the desperate state of man by nature, that what they were really given evidence of is that they loved the world, they were not spiritually minded, they did not have an overall affection toward the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were certainly not pressing after a life of holiness. I am not making a pronouncement. I am not giving a declaration. I'm just asking you, if you're interested in this site, you must be interested in the fact that you have to at least consider that this is a possibility, and more likely a probability. I know as a letter carrier in Grand Rapids for a number of years and having worked around Calvin College and a number of other Christian schools, if you looked at the students and you looked at their mannerisms, you looked at their hairstyles, you looked at their clothing or whatever, it looked like anything other than Christian. Now, it's interesting to me if you think about the revival that came to Northampton, Massachusetts in 1734 and 1735 under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. In a book, a narrative of many surprising conversions. It says in the judgment of charity, he believed that 300 people were converted during that revival. Well, if the church itself had no more than 600 people, and 300 of them, even if you included visitors coming in, were then converted, the assumption has to be that there were many unconverted people in that congregation. And if the pastor of a church under the ministries of Solomon Stoddard and Jonathan Edwards in 1734, is it an uncharitable assumption that there's going to be a lot of unconverted students in the Wesleyan University? So given that foundation and what I've already said about what happens during the revival, if these people are unconverted and the manifest presence of God was to descend upon an assembly, certainly there would be some strong crying out. It has been said that, well, we cannot judge their hearts because we are at a distance, and that is true. But the one thing that we certainly can see is the effects of hearts that have been melted by the manifest presence of God. It will have its effects upon the body. And no genuine revival that I am aware of, is there not this element of fear, dread, and terror that is felt by those who are under conviction of sin and are outside of Christ. But let me remind you of this. Let's turn again to the revival that I mentioned before, and the great revival in the United Kingdom in 1859, and the witness of this is Adam McGill, a pastor in Bolfifa, Ireland. Now this is not singular to this revival at this church. This is what happens in every historic revival that I have ever read when the unconverted or face before the manifest presence of God, it is like somebody unconverted standing before God and getting a foretaste of the judgment day. This is what it says. On the 11th of June, 1859, a prayer meeting in Glen Conway Schoolhouse, the Lord made bare to his holy arm in the sight of all the people. A young convert from County Antrim addressed a meeting earnestly and solemnly on what the Lord had done for his soul. The people listened. With deep attention, tears stole down many a cheek, hearts pent up with silent grief are ready to burst, and at the close six persons were plunged into the most heart-rending anguish I ever witnessed. The cry of all was to the same effect. 
Oh, my sins, my sins, I'm going to hell. Jesus, have mercy on me. One cried, Lord Jesus, have mercy on my wicked father and mother. Two young men shed tears bitterly, and with the arrow of the Lord in their souls, they went from the meeting to a graveyard, and there spent all night in wrestling with the Lord for pardon. Dear now candidates for the ministry, the following day, June 12th, was the Sabbath, a day which will never be forgotten by many in this parish. Oh, with what power and majesty Jehovah walked amongst us. Zechariah 12, verse 10 was wonderfully fulfilled to us. When the usual time for public worship came, the church was so crowded that we were obliged to retire to the churchyard and conduct the services in the open air. The crowd became immense. The minister and congregation of Scriggan have been joined us, and a more solemn assembly never met on earth. Now, obviously, these are the observations and the feelings of a pastor at a single revival, but the words are so similar to so many revivals that I've read, and if you doubt me, you can go back and listen to the other podcasts that I've done on revival and the Asbury revival to show the difference between historic revival and what is going on at Asbury University. But the same was under the ministry of Jonathan Dickinson, and certainly there was crying out. Everybody knows the history of what happened when Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God in Enfield, Connecticut on July 8, 1741. What they don't know is that he never actually finished that sermon. He couldn't. The crying out in the congregation was so loud, he put his arms in the air to be heard and had to desist because he couldn't be heard over the wails and the cries of the congregation. There were no microphones in that day. So let me finish this account here. During the services, the tears and suppressed sobs of many showed that it was no ordinary occasion, that it was the day of God's power, that the spirit of power was dealing personally with men's souls. When a benediction was pronounced, a few retired, but the great majority lingered, stood in fact as if held in a vice and bound with a chain, and in a moment as if struck with a thunderbolt, about a hundred persons were prostrated on their knees, sending forth a wail from hearts, bruised, broken, and overwhelmed with horror, such as will never be forgotten, and which perhaps for solemnity and awe will never be surpassed until the judgment day. Oh, what must the dwellings of the lost in hell be when the discovery is made that their lamps are gone out, that the day of mercy is past, and the door of hope shut forever? For hours he stricken, smitten, bleeding souls remained on their bended knees, unconscious of everything but their own guilt and danger and need of a Savior, pleading and praying with an intensity and fervor which surpasses all description, end quote. Again, I said on the other three, podcast that I did on this subject, I haven't seen any testimony, no witness whatsoever, of any wailing, of any crying out in desperation that they needed to be saved and that they feared that they were going to hell. No, the assumption is that almost all of these students their Christian profession is genuine and all they needed was renewal and so all they send up is praise songs worship songs. With that, I'll quote a couple of things from Tim Kelly's article. Some things may be wrong or misguided, but not particularly dangerous. Of course, I would say a false profession would be particularly dangerous. A small revival, or a purported revival if you prefer, 
and a small college far away does not necessarily demand a great deal of scrutiny by those who have no connection to it. End quote. My response to that would be two things. One, I'm about three hours away from where this college is. I live in Kentucky myself, but this thing was not done in a corner. It uh, garnered worldwide attention, and I actually received a message, what were my thoughts of it, from a pastor in Cuba. So as a student of history, one that really loves this study, of course, I wanted to look into it. But Tim says, while it is good to have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, there is usually little need to put the effort into what does not intersect your life and what is unlikely to cause anyone any great harm. Revival is not a clear biblical category like, for example, deacon or baptize. It is not a word we find in the New Testament, and it does not tell us to try to generate revivals or be on the watch for them. But certainly Tim knows that those constituent elements that make up a revival are certainly biblical terms. Certainly we can define conviction of sin, regeneration, an awakened conscience, Acts 2 verse 37, a renewal from a backslidden condition. All of these things can certainly be shown to be things that the Bible treats of, but I want to turn to, as I quoted before, William M. Hetherington's introduction to Lectures on Revival 1840 by the Ministers of Scotland, because I think his definition of revival is really very helpful. Says a revival will be viewed in two distinctly different aspects as manifested in these two different classes of people. It is a life-giving, light-imparting, quickening, regenerating, sanctifying energy of the Holy Spirit, converting the heart and sinner, and reclaiming the backsliding or dormant Christian. No one who deserves the name of a Christian will deny that these are the operations peculiarly ascribed in the Scriptures to the agency of the Holy Spirit, and that it is the duty of all to pray for and the privilege of all to expect them in answer to earnest belief in prayer. Know that there cannot be Christianity without them, and that they have taken place and are taking place in innumerable individual instances. When a single sinner is brought under the power of divine grace and conversion, or a saving change takes place in him, which may be known to no person except his immediate relations and pastors whose ministration he attends, this can, of course, attract no attention. And if it did would not be called a revival. If, on the other hand, one who had formerly been so converted, but had relapsed into a careless state, and in a great measure resumed his worldly habits, should be awakened out of this dangerous situation of the soul, quickened and renewed in the spirit of his mind, neither would this be called a revival, although it actually was so in a strict meaning of the term, but if many, of either or both of such cases should occur in one vicinity, and about the same time, so as to become evident to public observation, this would be termed a revival in the common acceptation of that term. When therefore men use or hear the term a revival of religion, it ought to be understood to mean an unusual manifestation of the power of the grace of God in convincing and converting careless sinners, and in quickening and increasing the faith and piety of real believers, end quote. Tim goes on to write, when revival breaks out, we need to guard against treating it as something that has an almost mystical or mythical quality to it. God's plan for the world is centered around the church, so we should be careful not to inadvertently disparage his plan A, which is and always will be the church, end quote. Well, of course, Tim knows that uh, 
The one thing that wasn't an element of the so-called revival in Asbury is any involvement in local churches. And the one thing that certainly was not in the ascendancy is the preaching of the word. He says, it seems to me that news of an outbreak of revival is met with a guarded optimism. Well, I would say that would be true if uh, revivals, I mean real true revivals that match up to the historic revivals that we could read about in the Great Awakening, in the uh, Great Revival in 1859 in the United Kingdom, the revivals under Asa Hell Nettleton and so on. If those were very common occurrences, then we could be more optimistic. But if this happens actually very rarely, and a lot of what we have experienced since 1860 is not revival, but revivalism, are we to be optimistic? Or aren't we exhorted to test the spirits? And the basic assumption is that there needs to be a manifest proof that God has ascended and his presence is felt in an assembly with the fruits of it. So I admit I approached this not with optimism, but with skepticism. And I was willing to say, I am willing to be proven wrong, but the testimonies that I'm receiving about this revival from the people that went there is that my skepticism has been confirmed. It hasn't been abated. He says, we don't need to be naive, but also don't need to be incredulous. And if that revival begins in a tradition very different from our own, though of course one that acknowledges the gospel, we should perhaps be especially glad and hopeful, for it is good to be reminded that God is at work in many different places and through many different people. Speaking personally, I would like my first instinct to be to praise God rather than fat chant. The thing to focus in on here are the words a tradition very different than our own. And this is something that he'll establish through this article that if a revival comes to a Wesleyan school with Wesleyan leaders, it may look different than something that came to Yale College under the ministry of Timothy Dwight. But the thing I want to establish is when the manifest presence of God comes down upon an assembly, whether you're Wesleyan or whether you're Presbyterian or whether you're Charismatic or whether you're Reformed Baptist, the results should be the same because it is God's work, it is not ours. In fact, the things that we are holding dear to us in a way that we approach public worship, all of that is going to take second place to the manifest presence of God within the assembly. And anybody who studies the history of what has happened in revivals and what most Methodists and Presbyterians were within the same revival, the results were the same. There were different characteristics about the revival in uh, Kentucky in 1800 down here in Logan County, about 90 miles from where I sit. There were Methodists within the camp. Peter Cartwright was there before William McGrady, who was a Presbyterian. But the convictions were the same. The outcries were the same. The Methodists had said that they went out into the woods, deeply wounded in spirit, and asking, what must I do to be saved? It didn't look a lot different than what the Presbyterians did, who were also brought under conviction. Tim goes on to quote Jim Elif, quote, How do you respond to a pastor friend who says that the youth in his church in his church, we need to uh, make an emphasis on that. This wasn't in a local church. Have experienced repentance and brokenness, and we can only know that by its fruits, and restored relationships and spontaneous youth-led gatherings which are less than perfect. That's very charitable saying that this is less than perfect. 
Uh, the judgment of charity, of course, is being exercised here because he's assuming that the youth and his church are Christians, that the repentance is genuine and the brokenness is genuine. But the thing I want to point out is that's a very small part of what a real revival consists of. And again, a missing element is a deep conviction of sin that happens to those who are unconverted. Anyway, to quote Tim again, a revival that emerges in a Wesleyan school led by a Wesleyan faculty within the Wesleyan tradition is likely to manifest itself in ways that are distinctly Wesleyan. But if you um, listen to the reports of the people who visited this revival and took notes and who were of a discerning mind, the one thing that is different from what Tim is assuming here, he says they were led by a Wesleyan faculty, but the students said that the thing that they rejoiced in in this so-called revival is that there actually was no leadership, and it manifested itself in that the revival became one thing to one student and a different thing altogether to a different student. This is a part that's really interesting to me as somebody that has been uh, studying everything that Jonathan Edwards has written on revival for the last uh, 40 years. He says, Jonathan Edwards once made some good and helpful observations about the distinguishing marks of a revival, but his observations are not authoritative. I don't think that that book was written about his observations. I think that what he aimed to do was take the Bible and examine the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God and line them up with the Bible, and in that case, they would be authoritative. But if you're going to make that statement about his work, distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God, in the same vein, then you have to reject his work called a treatise on the religious affections and thoughts on the present revival of religion. Tim says he, after all, lived at a particular time and in a certain place within a distinct context. We need to think about that for a moment. So that if it was a different time, in a different place, in a different context, it would be a completely different revival. But when the manifest presence of a Holy Spirit who is unchangeable, Malachi 3.6, ascends upon a church, whether it's in the 18th century or the 21st century, the basic distinguishing characteristics are still going to be the same. Tims then says, but even if we appreciate Jonathan Edwards' insights, we should be cautious about demanding that a revival looks exactly like his description, or about disparaging one that doesn't perfectly match it. And what we're trying to establish here is it doesn't only not perfectly match it, it's not anything like it. The priority was the preaching of the Word of God. There was a very, say, spiritual guy, Jonathan Edwards says in his History of the Revival of Religion in Northampton, 1734 and 1735, that about 300 people came to him for counsel during that time. But to go back to the article by William M. Hetherington, a preface to Lectures on Revival, he says, many of these so-styled revivals are either altogether unreal or are so mingled with airs and lead to such abuses that it is very dangerous to give them any countenance. No person who knows what he is doing can wish to encourage a fatal delusion. 
No person who wishes to see sinners converted and believers quickened can possibly wish anything to take place which could only tend to harden the sinner and lull the backslider into an irreclaimable security, end quote. Well, if these good and sober Presbyterian pastors were concerned about that in 1840, where does that leave us in 2023 if we are not very discerning, much more discerning, especially when the fact of the matter is most of these students would have a wrong view of conversion anyway, because on our day, justification and regeneration are treated as synonymous terms. We know that because people say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be regenerated, not knowing that regeneration is the cause and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is the effect. Regeneration precedes conversion. Well, I'll end this podcast by adding a section of Williams Briggs Lectures on Revival that I've already narrated called Evils to be Avoided in Connection with Revivals. Evils to be avoided in connection with revivals. Romans 14 verse 16. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. This direction of the apostle was suggested by a particular case, which was the subject of controversy in the church at Rome when this epistle was written. You will instantly perceive, however, that the rule here prescribed is of universal application and that it is founded in general principles of Christian prudence and charity. The design of it is not only to direct us in the practice of that which is good, but to lead us to unite wisdom with our pious activity, that we may, so far as possible, prevent incidental evils from being connected with our well-meant efforts, and that our good may be inoffensive and irreproachable. As there is no part of Christian conduct in relation to which this direction is not applicable, So if I mistake not, it applies especially to the part which the church is called to take in a revival of religion, indeed to the whole economy of a revival. For as there is no department of religious action in which even good men are not liable to err, so there is no other field in which a Christian is called to labor, where there is greater danger of his being misled. There is in the minds of most men a tendency to extremes, and that tendency is never so likely to discover itself as in a season of general religious excitement. When men are greatly excited on any subject, we know that they are in far more danger of forming erroneous judgments and adopting improper courses than when they are in circumstances to yield themselves to sober reflection. Now, as there is often great excitement in connection with a revival, There is a common danger which exists in all cases of highly excited feeling that our honest endeavors to do right will result in more or less that is wrong. In other words, that we shall give occasion for our good to be evil spoken of. The conclusion to which we should be brought on this subject from the very constitution of human nature is in exact accordance with what we know of the history of revivals. There always has been mingled with these scenes of divine power and grace, more or less, of human infirmity and indiscretion, and in some cases, no doubt, in which there have even been many genuine conversions, there has been just reason to say, what is the wheat to the chaff? To say nothing of revivals in modern times, whoever will read the history of the early revivals in New England, while he will evidence enough that the presence and power of God was in them, if he be a Christian, will regard the record of them as occupying one of the most blessed chapters in the history of the church, will nevertheless find just cause to weep 
that they should have been clouded so much by the mistakes and infirmities even of good men. But those good men, some of them at least, lived to be satisfied that they were in the wrong, and it is their honor that they acknowledged it. And it were impossible to read the record of their acknowledgment. Without feeling a sentiment of veneration for their characters, and without wishing that the heirs into which they fell might, so far as they were themselves concerned, be blotted from the memory of the church. I am aware, my friends, that in endeavoring to present before you the abuses to which revivals are liable, and with which they have always been in a greater or less degree connected, I am undertaking a task of peculiar delicacy, and I confess to you that nothing but a strong and honest sense of duty would have led me to attempt it. I will state to you the considerations which have arisen to occasion this reluctance, in a manner in which I have felt myself obliged to dispose of them. In the first place, I can hardly doubt that an attempt to expose these evils may appear to some unnecessary. But so thought not the illustrious Jonathan Edwards when his discriminating and mighty mind was occupied in framing some of the most judicious treatises which the world has ever seen, for the very purpose of guarding against the abuses of revivals. On the title page of those books, the church has written her own name, and she claims them as her property, in a higher sense than almost anything else except the Bible. And it is not manifest that that illustrious man judged rightly in composing them, and that the church is judged rightly in the estimate she has formed of them. For who does not perceive that if revivals of religion become corrupted, there is poison in the fountain whose streams are expected to gladden and purify. And who is that competent to judge will doubt that those treatises have done more than any other uninspired productions to maintain the purity of revivals from the period in which they were written to the present. If Jonathan Edwards has rendered good service to the church by writing those immortal books, then surely it cannot be unnecessary for other ministers to direct their humbler efforts to the same end. It is just as necessary now to distinguish between true and false experience, and between right and wrong conduct in a revival of religion, as it ever has been in any preceding period, in a manner in which this duty is practically regarded must always determine in a great degree the amount of blessing which any revival will secure. But it may be said also, that what I am about to attempt should be avoided because it is fitted to awaken controversy, I acknowledge the controversy on the subject of religion is not in itself desirable, for it is exceeding liable to wake up the bad passions of men. Nevertheless, there are some cases in which we shall all agree that it is necessary to hazard the evils that may result from it. No being on earth ever awakened a more violent religious controversy than Jesus Christ. But if it had not been for this, where now would have been our blessed Christianity? So also Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox, and a whole host of reformers excited a controversy concerning religion, which had well nigh set the world on fire. But if it had not existed, what evidence have you that the church would to this hour of witness the glorious Reformation? Jonathan Edwards publisheth thoughts on the present revival of religion, and other invaluable works in connection with the same subject at the expense of being denounced even by some of his own brethren, as an enemy of revivals. But these publications have served to correct and prevent great abuses ever since. And if he had rendered the church no other service, 
for this alone she would have embalmed his memory. Controversy, then, though it is never to be desired for its own sake, cannot always be declined in consistency with Christian obligation, or without putting at fearful hazard the best interests of the church. In the present case, however, permit me to say that I have no intention to excite controversy by attacking any man or body of men. The evils which I shall endeavor to expose are none of them peculiar to any one denomination of Christians or to any particular period of the church, but they have existed at various periods and among different sects, and there is always danger that they will exist from the very constitution of human nature, if it should be said with some of the remarks which I shall offer ought to be withheld, on the ground that they admit of application to an existing state of things in the church. I acknowledge that that seems to me a strong reason why they should not be withheld. For if the abuses of which I shall speak actually exist in our own times, we are in the greater danger of falling into them, and in the greater need of being guarded against them. Whereas if they were only evils of other days, I might, in speaking of them, seem to be beating the air. But I utterly disclaim all responsibility in respect to any particular application. I only say that such abuses have existed, do exist, but my province in respect to them is not to charge them upon any individuals or upon any particular portion of the church, but to endeavor to guard you against them. The only point for which I hold myself responsible is that these are really evils and ought to be avoided. It may also occur to some that an exhibition of the evils which are sometimes connected with revivals may be fitted to injure the general cause by leading many to the conclusion that if ministers themselves acknowledge that there is so much chaff in them, probably the whole is delusion and worthy to be regarded only with indifference or contempt, that some men may have taken refuge from the convictions of conscience in this miserable delusion, far be it from me to question. Nevertheless, I am constrained to believe that it is a rare case in which any good cause is ultimately injured by telling the honest truth respecting it. I am constrained to believe that it is a rare case in which any good cause is ultimately injured by telling the honest truth respecting it. Besides, you may be assured that the cause of revivals is far more likely to suffer by an attempt, on the part of its friends, to pass off everything for gold than by giving to that which has really draws its proper name. Suppose you should introduce a mere man of the world, if you please, a man of high intellectual culture, into a revival in which there should be gross disorder and fanaticism, and you should endeavor without any qualifying remarks to impress him with the importance of the work that was going forward. It is altogether probable, he would say, or at least think, that if it were a revival, he had seen enough of it. And if that were religion, the less he had of it, the better. But suppose you should say to him, of all that is disorderly, that is a mere operation of human infirmity or passion, the chaff mingling with the wheat, and of all that is good and praiseworthy, that is a genuine operation of the Holy Spirit. And he would not improbably, in view of that distinction, acknowledge the reality and importance of the work. You cannot even if you would, make sensible men think in ordinary cases that that is religion or part of a revival of religion which is not so, and any attempt of this kind is exceeding liable to awaken their hostility to the whole subject, 
Irreligious men are generally ready to admit the correctness of any distorted accounts of religion, especially if they get them on so good authority as that of Christians themselves. For every such account furnishes them with an argument against the whole subject and puts their consciences into a still deeper lethargy. And finally, I can suppose it may appear to some that any attempt to expose the evils incidentally connected with revivals may be fraught with danger, inasmuch as it is acknowledged on all hands that these evils exist among good men, and with them are connected with much that is praiseworthy, and it may be thought safest to let the tares and wheat flourish together lest an attempt to remove the former should expose the latter. As to the fact that the evils to which I refer have been found among truly devoted men, there is no ground for question. Even the well-known James Davenport, who was for a while an apostle of fanaticism, and who publicly denounced and prayed for by name many of the most eminent ministers of New England as the enemies of revivals, was nevertheless beyond a peradventure. A good man had thought that in all his irregularities he was faithfully serving his master, but he did not think so always, for he afterwards penitently and publicly acknowledged his error, and even justified the severest censure which his conduct had received. Yes, I repeat, good men do fall into these excesses, and so also good men are sanctified but in part. And as we do not fear that any scriptural endeavors to purify them from remaining corruption will exert a bad influence upon their Christian graces, so we ought not to apprehend that any judicious efforts to correct the errors to which I refer will serve in any degree to abate their truly Christian zeal and activity. There are cases I acknowledge in which great evils must be tolerated for a season, because any attempt to remove them would only make way for greater ones, but nothing is more certain than that to tolerate evil in good men because they are good men is directly contrary both to the spirit and letter of the gospel. And besides the very fact that there is much that is praiseworthy in their characters, and much that is benign in their influence, is a reason why we should do all in our power to remove whatever may in any degree impair their usefulness. We would treat good men in this respect as in every other, while we would acknowledge them good. We would strive to make them better and more useful. I have now stated to you the grounds of the delicacy which I have felt in bringing this subject before you, on the one hand, and the grounds of my conviction that my duty as a Christian minister would not permit me to pass it by. On the other, some of the evils to which I have referred in general I proceed now more distinctly to consider. Number one, one prominent evil to be guarded against in a revival is the cherishing of false hopes. I surely need not undertake to prove that this is an evil and one appalling in magnitude, for a false hope at the gate of eternity is a passport to hell, and such a hope once indulged is exceedingly apt to hold its place till the last, though it sometimes lurks in the bosom almost unobserved even by the individual who is the subject of it, and where it is given up. It more commonly makes way for a kind of vague skepticism in respect to all experimental religion and steals the conscience in a great measure against future conviction. There are doubtless some who indulge a false hope that are subsequently awakened and become true Christians, but in general such a hope is undoubtedly the best security which the adversary could desire for keeping the soul under his entire dominion. Now I admit that in every case of supposed conversion there is a liability to a false hope. Let a revival be conducted with as much wisdom as it may. 
and there is danger that there will be some cases of self-deception. And the reason is obvious, for the first evidence upon which the mind fastens is a change of feeling. But some of the operations of animal passion appear so much like truly gracious affections that even advanced Christians often mistake in their endeavors to distinguish between them. Certainly, then, there is far greater danger that those who have had no experience in religion, and who withal are eagerly looking out to cast a first gleam of evidence that they have been renewed, there is a far greater danger that they will mistake some accidental and joyous, yet temporary commotion of the animal feelings for the exercise of a principle of true piety. I am sure that every person who has been conversant with revivals must acknowledge that this is in accordance with fact. Who that is mingled even in the most genuine revival has not witnessed, in some instances at least, a painful exemplification of the character of the stony ground hearers, in whom for a while there was much that looked like religion, but because the principle was lacking, it all gradually withered away. Now, if there is danger of the indulgence of a false hope in every case, there is special danger of it under particular circumstances, change which takes place in conversion is of a moral nature. It has its seat in the soul and nowhere else. There is no natural connection between this change and any bodily postures or movements. If then the idea be held out that conversion is usually associated with the loss of bodily strength, or with any remarkable bodily motions, or that it is more likely to happen to an individual in one place or one posture than another, where the same truths are proclaimed and the same prayers offered, there is great danger that this will lead to self-deception, that, with unreflecting minds at least, the bodily exercise which profits little will be put in place of that godliness which is a promise of eternal life, there is danger that the individual will substitute what is considered an external expression of anxiety for his soul, for the internal workings of genuine conviction. If there be something of true conviction, there is danger that he will mistake the physical act of taking a particular place or posture, which is spoken of as peculiarly favorable to conversion, for the spiritual act of yielding up the soul to the Savior. Again, the instrument by which every conversion is effected is God's truth. If then ministers during a revival fail to uphold the truth and its distinctive and commanding features, they confine themselves principally to impassioned addresses and earnest exitory appeals, there is great reason to apprehend many spurious conversions. God requires indeed that the truth should be preached in an earnest manner, but it must be the truth that is preached. And not only he will honor in the conversion of men, I appeal to the whole record of revivals for evidence, that where anything has been substituted to any extent in place of this, where exhortation instead of holiness proper place has taken a place of instruction, there has been the least of sound, deep, abiding religious impression, and there have been found the greatest number of hopeful converts whose subsequent experiences proved that they had no root in themselves. Still further, the change which a soul experiences in regeneration is a change of mighty import. Nothing less than a new creation, old things passing away and all things becoming new. In a course of instruction, then, which should leave the impression that it may be accomplished independently of a divine influence, or that a man has nothing to do but to wish himself a Christian in order to become one, or that it is as easy to change one's heart from the love of sin to the love of holiness, 
is to change one's purpose in respect to any worldly concern, or to perform any physical act. Any such course of instruction, I say, must necessarily expose to self-deception, because it represents the conversion of the soul to God as comparatively a small matter. And if that impression be gained, how reasonable to expect that the individual should suppose himself converted when he is not so. The way of effecting true conversions, no doubt, is to represent the work to be done in all of its magnitude, and then to bring out the very mind of the spirit in respect to the manner of doing it, and the means by which it is to be accomplished. I think you will agree with me, my friends, that in any of the circumstances which I have here supposed, there is special danger that sinners will take up with false hopes. There is yet another course of treatment which is extremely well adapted to cherish and confirm such hopes. Let the sinner who has actually deceived himself hear his supposed conversion spoken of with as much confidence as if it were known to be a genuine one. Let him hear himself constantly numbered among the converts, and by those in whose judgment and experience he confides. Let there be little or nothing said that implies a possibility of its being deceived, and let everything that is done in respect to him seem to take it for granted that he stands on safe ground. And above all, let him immediately be introduced into the church, and if he ever wakes out of that delusion, believe me, it will be less than a miracle. This last step particularly is fitted more than any other to entrench him in a habit of self-security, which he will probably carry with him to his deathbed. Number 2. Another of the evils to be guarded against in a revival is the spirit of self-confidence. Even advanced Christians are liable to this, and sometimes exhibited in a degree that is truly humiliated. While they are witnessing the powerful operation of God's Spirit in the conviction and conversion of sinners, and are actively engaged in helping on the work, they lose sight in some degree of the fact that they are but unworthy instruments, and though there may be an acknowledgment of divine agency occasionally upon their lips, yet in their hearts they are really taken to themselves a glory. I need not speak of the manner in which the Spirit discovers itself, in a part which they bear in a revival. For no one who witnesses its operation can easily mistake it. But I may say with confidence that wherever it exists, it mars the beauty and detracts from the purity and hinders the efficacy of the work. But I refer here more particularly to a self-confident spirit, as it is often exhibited by young converts. And let me say that the very same course of treatment to which I have just adverted is being fitted to cherish and confirm a false hope is adapted to awaken even in those who have truly been converted a spirit of self-confidence. This is a great evil as it respects our own growth and grace. Wherever it exists, there will be little of self-examination, little sense of the need of being constantly taught and guided by the Holy Spirit, little of that humility which becomes a sinner redeemed by the blood of Christ and saved by sovereign grace. And I may add a little of that gratitude which looks in acts of faith and praise toward the Lamb that was slain, that there may be much of zeal connected with self-confidence and a young Christian cannot be questioned, though it may reasonably be doubted whether even that is altogether of a heavenly origin. But, whether it be so or not, it usually happens where it is found in connection with this spirit that the flame burns with diminished brightness until it is nearly died away. Nor is the spirit less prejudicial to the young Christian as connected with his usefulness 
In a young convert especially, nothing is so lovely as humility. Let him show by his deportment rather than by his professions that he often turns his eye upon the hold of the pit from which he hopes he has been taken, that if he has obtained mercy he feels he deserves nothing but wrath, and that for aught he knows he may be indulging the hope of the hypocrite. Certainly he has much to do to make his calling and election sure. I say, let him manifest such a spirit in his conduct, and it will give him favor with all with whom he associates, and it will secure him access to many hearts which might otherwise be barred against his influence. But let him, on the other hand, speak of his conversion as if it were sure and genuine. Let him refer with confidence to the very moment when it occurred. Let him talk of it as an event that has been brought about by mere human agency, and let him say to others by his deportment, Stand by. I am holier than you, and you may rest assured, especially if he be a young person, that he can have little hope of accomplishing much for the cause of Christ. There will be something in his very manner to repel those whom he should desire to win. And though he may console himself in the view of his unsuccessful efforts by thinking and speaking of the obstinacy of sinners, yet it were more reasonable that he should humble himself that if he be a Christian, his conduct in this very particular indicates so much of remaining infirmity and corruption. Number three, another lamentable evil incident to revivals is the spirit of censoriousness. No doubt there is much in the conduct of many Christians and ministers at such a time to give occasion for regret. And if they appear cold and worldly, it is only a Christian duty that we should affectionately admonish them of their error and endeavor to render them more spiritual and active. But this is something quite different from that censorious denouncing spirit to which I here refer which, though it be exercised in reference to religion, is nothing better than the spirit of the world. And it is easy to see how it gets into operation even in good men. Their minds are awake to the great subject of the soul's salvation, and they are oppressed by its amazing weight. They feel that something efficient ought to be done, must be done, to wake up a slumbering world. And they desire that all Christians should go along with them in their efforts. In this state of mind, they are prepared for nothing but cordial cooperation, and where they do not find it, corrupt nature takes advantage of the excitement they have reached and the disappointment they feel, and perhaps with all of a naturally ardent temperament, to discharge itself not only in grievous complaints, but sometimes even in bitter invective. This is a most favorable account of the exercise of the spirit. There are other cases, no doubt, in which it is identified with the spirit of self-righteousness in which the secret and prevailing feeling of the heart is, that heaping censor upon others is an easy way of laying up treasure in heaven, that to complain of the coldness and worldliness of our fellow Christian, it is an evidence of zeal and devotion in ourselves. But let the spirit have its origin in whatever state of mind it may. We shall all agree that it is a serious evil and ought to be guarded against with the utmost care. It is not uncommon to find a spirit marking the conduct of private Christians towards each other. There are some who will condemn their brethren as cold Christians, or perhaps even no Christians at all, because with less of constitutional ardor than themselves, and possibly more prudence, they are not prepared to concur at once in every measure that may be suggested for the advancement of a revival or because they talk less of their own feelings than some others, 
or because they attend fewer public religious exercises than could be desired, or because from extreme constitutional diffidence they may either properly or improperly decline taking part in such exercises. Many a Christian, who has been laboring faithfully and judiciously for the salvation of sinners, whose closet has witnessed to the fervor of his devotion, and whose conversation has been according to the gospel of Christ, has not only been suspected by his brethren of coldness for some one or other of the reasons just mentioned, but has been marked and denounced and even prayed for as dead to the interests of revivals, if not dead in trespasses and sins. On the other hand, it is not to be questioned that men of a cautious habit, who are constitutionally afraid of excitement, sometimes unjustly accuse their more zealous brethren of rashness and impute to spiritual pride what really ought to be set to the account of an honest devotedness to Christ. Especially, if real and great abuses actually exist, they may be so much afraid of coming within the confines of disorder that they may rush to the opposite extreme of formality, and from that cold region they may look off upon the Christian who evinces nothing more than a consistent and enlightened zeal, and hail him as if he were burning to death in the very torrid zone of enthusiasm. The same spirit which discovered itself in private Christians towards each other is also frequently manifest in respect to different churches. A church which is abundantly blessed with revivals may condemn with a high hand another church in which, Though religion may not be in a languishing state, yet there may never have been any general and sudden effusion of the Holy Spirit, and this may be attributed most unjustly to a cold ministry, or to some signal want of faithfulness in the members when the fact that the church is really in a flourishing state, its interest being sustained by gradual rather than by sudden accessions, is entirely overlooked and where there is not only the absence of revivals, but the spiritual interests of a church are really depressed, it is still more common to hear the case spoken of with an air of unchristian severity, and not unfrequently there is something like a sentence of reprobation passed upon the whole body, as if they were indiscriminately a company of backsliders, or where a church differs from another in its views of the economy of revivals, it may denounce that other is chilled with the frost of apathy on the one hand, or scorched with the fires of fanaticism on the other, when, as the case may be, the church that is the object of censor may hold correct and scriptural ground. Any church, whether it be distinguished by its zeal or its lack of zeal, that takes the responsibility of dealing out violent censors upon its sister churches, especially if they are walking in the faith and order of the gospel, certainly assumes a degree of responsibility which it can ill afford to bear, and it will have no just ground for surprise if it should meet a painful retribution, not only in bringing back upon itself the censors of men, but in bringing down upon itself the displeasure of God. And I am constrained to go further, and say that ministers have sometimes erred in the same manner, judging each other as fanatics or as drones, some supposing that their brethren were setting the world on fire when they shed around them no worse light than that of sober, consistent zeal, and others that their brethren were in a very valley of death as it respects religious feeling when the principle of spiritual life was beating in strong and vigorous pulsations. I will say nothing of what exists on this subject in our own day, 
but I refer you to what has been in other days. I point you, for example, to men who have long since been in their graves, and whose joy in the world of glory will not be interrupted by our learning wisdom from the imperfections of which they are now entirely free, and which they have lived bitterly to lament. In the revivals which are recorded in the early part of the history of New England, there were a considerable number of ministers, and among them the individual to whom I have already referred is distinguished for his extravagance, who declared a mass of their brethren to be unconverted men, who denounced them as leading souls to hell, and who endeavored by every means in their power to alienate from them their congregations, that they might bring them under the influence of what they regarded as a more faithful ministry. This unhappy faction from the nature of the case was not of long continuance. It cannot be because it lived upon the highest excitement, but it lasted long enough to counteract to a melancholy extent the benign effects of that work of grace, long enough to entail upon at least two generations its destructive consequences. If you read the history of those days, or rather of those men, there will be everything to make you weep until you come to the delightful fact that they saw their error and acknowledged it and wept over it themselves. I know of no way in which a censorious spirit can discover itself, whether in ministers or private Christians, that is so revolting, and I may say dreadful, as in prayer. The fact must be acknowledged, humbling as it is, that men have sometimes seemed to be pouring out at the foot of the throne their resentments against cold Christians and ministers, and have even assumed the office of judging their hearts, and have told the Almighty Being apparently for the sake of telling the congregation that they were as dead as the tenants of the tomb. Brethren, no apology can be offered for this, not even the semblance of an apology. Christian charity herself can record nothing better concerning such a prayer than that it breathes the spirit of the world in one of its most odious forms. Whatever degree of religious indifference may be have called it forth, it certainly cannot furnish a juster cause for humiliation than does the prayer itself. Number four. Inconstancy in religion is another evil to be avoided in connection with revivals. Men are exceedingly prone to vibrate from one extreme to the other. And it is a law of human nature that a very powerful excitement in respect to the same individuals cannot long be sustained. Hence, there is danger the Christian from the excitement to which they are liable during a revival will gradually fall into a state of spiritual languor, and will even give occasion for the cutting inquiry, What do you more than others? Now, what might be expected from the very tendencies of human nature to happen, we find actually does happen both in respect to individuals and churches. Who has not seen the Christian during a revival seeming to be constantly on the mount, both of enjoyment and of action, willing apparently to wear himself out in the service of his master, and for the salvation of souls, and in a few months after comparatively silent and inactive and insensible in the great subject which has so lately occupied him, almost to the exclusion of every other, and who that has been much conversant with revivals has not seen a church during one of these seasons a special blessing, waking up to a lively sense of obligation, sending up united and holy and strong supplications, and laboring incessantly with an eye now on the cross and now on the judgment seat, 
and now on the crown of life in the same church at a subsequent period apparently forgetting their responsibility, become a cold in their devotions, and relax in all their efforts for the salvation of men. In the one case you would have supposed from their fidelity that they were marching on to a high state in glory, in the other you would especially, if you had turned your eye off from the Bible, have almost been ready to doubt the perseverance of the saints. Now, wherever this state of things exists, it is a serious evil, both as respects the church and the world. It is so to the church because it mars the consistency and beauty of her character, lessens the amount of her communion with her head and renders her light comparatively dim and feeble when she is commanded to let it shine with a steady brightness. It is an evil to the world inasmuch as it casts an air of suspicion in the view of many over the reality and importance of revivals, and leads them to imagine that Christians worked hard one day to purchase the privilege of doing nothing the next, and that a revival is a manner to be got up and laid aside at the pleasure of those who engage in it. It leads them, moreover, to think less than any otherwise would of the good influence of Christians when they attempt to exert it, and when, in a more favored season, they show themselves active in the endeavor to arouse up the sinner's slumbering conscience, not improbably their exertions will be unavailing. From his recollection of their indifference at other times and his impression that their zeal is a mere creature of circumstances, you will all agree with me that this is a great evil and ought to be guarded against with the utmost caution. One means of avoiding it is by endeavoring to keep down animal passion, especially at the height of the revival when it is most likely to be awakened. For the stronger the excitement of the animal nature, the greater the tendency to a universal reaction. Another means is by endeavoring to keep up spiritual feeling when the general excitement attending a revival begins to pass away. For that is a critical time when religious languor usually first creeps over the soul. By using the proper caution at these two points, the church may effectually avoid the evil which I am considering, and instead of becoming listless at the close of her revival, she may show that she has renewed her strength for subsequent labors and conflicts. Number 5. Another evil to be guarded against in connection with revivals is ostentation. I don't refer here to the manner in which revivals are sometimes conducted haven't adverted to that already, but to the manner in which they are represented, both in common communication and through the press, and I cannot doubt that in respect to both are as much that no discreet Christian can contemplate without regret and disapprobation. It is not uncommon during the progress of a revival and sometimes in an early stage of it to hear its glorious results spoken of with as much confidence as if they had actually been realized. Particular religious exercises, which may have been attended with unusual solemnity, are represented as having secured the conversion, not only of a great, but in a definite number of souls. One is represented as having preached, another as having prayed, another as having talked so many sinners into the kingdom. Perhaps the infidel has professed suddenly to renounce his infidelity and embrace a savior. Or perhaps a profligate has wept in view of his profligacy and resolved to enter upon a new life. These cases are confidently spoken of as instances of genuine conversion. And what is still worse, they are too often spoken of as such in the presence of the very persons who were the subjects of them. 
It is easy to see that if the individuals are true converts, the effect of this must probably be to inflate them with spiritual pride. If they are not true converts, it must fearfully aid the work of self-deception. It leaves a bad impression also upon the world, for it is the exact opposite of the humility, that sense of dependence, that disposition to acknowledge God in every spiritual blessing which constitutes some of the loveliest features of Christian character. But what I chiefly refer to under this article is the ostentatious complexion and the premature date of many of those narratives of revivals which are given to the world through our religious periodicals. It is only honest to acknowledge that many of them, though evidently dictated by a desire to do good, are yet eminently fitted to do evil. They are written in the midst of strong excitement when the mind is most in danger of mistaking shadows for substances, when a strong hopes that much is about to be done, are easily exchanged for a conviction that much has been actually accomplished. Hence all who are supposed to appear more serious than usual are reckoned as subjects of conviction, and all who profess the slightest change of feeling are set down as converts. In particular, the instances are detailed in which very obstinate sinners have been made very humble, and then have become entranced with bright visions of the Savior, and other cases are mentioned in which a child is pressed forward into the kingdom in spite of the opposition of a wicked parent or a wife, notwithstanding she was persecuted by an ungodly husband. Now the narrative containing these particulars goes abroad into the world, and almost, of course, comes back immediately into the congregation whose religious state it professes to describe, and what, thank you, will probably be the effect, what will be upon those who here find it announced to the world that they have been converted, and perhaps read a high wrought and glowing story of their conversion. What especially must it be on those who are represented as having been the subjects of a miracle of grace, as having been great sinners, and now have become great saints? If they are really converted, the effect of this must be, as in the case just mentioned, to lessen their humility and open their hearts to temptation. If they are cherishing a false hope, it cannot fail to add to its strength. And if, before the narrative meets them, as a very supposable case, they have cast off their serious impressions and returned to the world. It must provoke and irritate them, and thus fearfully increase their obduracy and render their salvation still more improbable. What effect will this be likely to have upon those who are designated, if not by name yet so as to be identified as having been distinguished for their malignant opposition to the work? It will awaken in them the spirit of fins. It will embolden them to fight still more furiously against God and against his people, and on them probably to do that which will seal their perdition. And what must it effect upon the surrounding world? What, when they compare the written statement with what has fallen under their own observation and find a sad disagreement, must it not be to create and cherish a prejudice against all revivals? Must it not throw open an air of suspicion over every statement respecting them which they either hear or read? Must it not even bring in question the veracity of good men? You will by no means understand me as intimating any disapprobation of publishing at a proper time, even detailed accounts of revivals, so far from this that I regard it as due to the church, due to the honor of him whom we acknowledge as a great agent in revivals, that such accounts should in due time be sent forth. 
But let them not in ordinary cases be written until the true results of the revival are in some measure known. Certainly let them be confined to palpable facts which no one can gainsay. Let them be framed with a deliberate recollection that they are to be scanned by multitudes, that they are to exert an influence either for or against the cause of revivals, and that God is not honored but offended by the least attempt to go beyond the truth even in recording triumphs of his grace. It is a matter of importance that all narratives of this kind should be furnished by competent and responsible persons, those who have opportunity to know the facts, and ability properly to estimate them. While it cannot be questioned that there are many instances at the present day in which the evil of which I am speaking is strikingly exemplified, it is an occasion for joy that there are many other cases in which revivals are detailed seasonably judiciously, and in a manner fitted in all respects to subserve the cause of truth and piety. Number 6. Undervaluing divine institutions and divine truth is another evil which often exists in connection with revivals. It is common, and no doubt right too, during the season of special attention to religion, to increase the number of occasional services during the week, and especially the number of meetings for social prayer. And it is desirable that Christians should feel a deep interest in these exercises, and should regard it as not less a duty than a privilege to engage in them as their circumstances may admit. But they are not to be considered in a strict sense as divine institutions, for though there is a fair warrant for them in the general spirit of the gospel, and as we believe, even in a direct sanction in an apostolic usage, Yet the regulation of them is a manner which God has been pleased to leave to the wisdom of the church. And whenever Christians exalt them to an equality with those institutions which are strictly divine, they may expect to incur the displeasure of the master, as well as lose a benefit which these exercises are adapted, when kept in their proper place to impart. But there is reason to apprehend that many Christians during the season of revival actually do and their feelings attach and important to these services which is even paramount to that which they recognize as belonging to the public exercises of the Lord's day. The sacred feeling of the heart there is reason to believe often is that to attend public worship upon the Sabbath, though it is a duty, is yet too little in it that is distinctive and out of the common course to be regarded with a very deep interest, whereas those services which are observed during the week, and which seem more like a free will offering, rise in their estimation to the highest degree of importance. There is in all this no doubt more or less a self-righteousness, a sort of unacknowledged and perhaps undetected feeling, that the eye of God rests upon them even with more favor, when they are rendering him a service which he has left in some measure to their own discretion, than when they are walking in the plain and broad path of his direct commandments. These occasional services, I repeat, are not to be undervalued, for they are important helps in every point of view towards sustaining and carrying forward a revival, but that we may reap the benefit they are designed to secure, we must give them no higher place than the great head of the church is manifestly assigned to them. And while there is danger that the social exercises which a church may establish during a revival may lead to too low a comparative estimation of the stated services of the Sabbath, there is perhaps equal danger that they may bring in to some degree of disregard the duties of the closet, 
especially if these occasional exercises are greatly multiplied, the time which is requisite for attending them besides other duties of a more secular nature may leave but little opportunity for self-communion, reading the scriptures and private prayer, and there is reason to fear that sometimes at least the Christian makes a compromise with his conscience for at least a partial neglect of these latter duties by calling to mind his exemplary diligence and constancy in respect to the former. And besides, there is no doubt that it lays his power under far less contribution to be engaged in a constant round of social exercises, which are fitted to excite the mind, than to enter into his private prayer closet, and commune with himself and apply the truths and precepts of the gospel for the regulation of his affections and conduct. It is to this practical air, I doubt not, that we are to attribute in a great degree the fact that many Christians who engage with much interest in a revival still seem to turn it to so little account of its respects their own personal piety. Nothing is more certain than that the neglect of closet duties, whatever other duties may be performed, must wither the believer's graces and render his Christian character sickly and inefficient. If you would avoid the evil which is here contemplated and secure the good which is aimed at by those who incur the evil, let God's institutions be kept in their proper place. Regard the public services of the Sabbath as far the most important which you can attend. Think it, however, a blessed privilege that you may meet for religious purposes frequently at other times, but never let such meetings be a substitute for secret devotion, and if the effect of them should ever be to keep you away from your closet, or to give you a disrelish for it duties, you need no other evidence that there is something wrong, either that your attendance on these social services is too frequent, or not with the right spirit, nor is there less danger that a revival may be perverted to the undervaluing of God's truth. At such a time, especially, men love to be excited, and while those who hear the preaching of the word are apt to delight in those stirring and earnest appeals which are most fitted to rouse the feelings, there is a strong temptation on the part of ministers to feed his passion for excitement, limiting themselves to a few topics of exhortation rather than by holding up gospel truth in all its extent and fullness. And in this way it often comes to pass that there is an aversion contracted to instructive preaching. The doctrines of the Bible come to be regarded both by people and ministers as comparatively tame, and I hardly need say that as a consequence the ministry loses much of its real efficiency, and a piety of the church languishes for lack of its appropriate nourishment. Nor is this all. It cannot be questioned that revivals are sometimes made the occasion not only of inspiring a disgust for sober scriptural doctrine, but of introducing into the church a flood of error. Ministers in seasons of great excitement and in the desire of saying something that shall seize hold of the feelings sometimes make unguarded expressions which involve some important error, and if these expressions seem to be followed by good effects, they are in danger of repeating them until they come really to adopt the error which is thus involved. And then again, the excited multitude in such circumstances are usually carried away by the appearance of great zeal and earnestness. And he who evinces the most of these qualities is almost sure to be the favorite preacher, and if he be disposed to commingle air with truth, there is every probability that in many instances, at least, the one will be received with the other without inquiry or suspicion. Such has been the history of the introduction and progress of some of the wildest reveries and grossest airs which have disturbed the peace and marred the purity of the church. 
Let ministers and private Christians, those who preach and those who hear, be alike on their guard against this tremendous evil.